Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, making his Politicology debut is Denver, Colorado-based communications specialist Owen Loftus. Owen is a senior program officer at the Gill Foundation, advocating for LGBTQ equality in state legislatures. Owen previously worked for the Colorado GOP and several prominent Colorado Republicans before he ultimately left the Republican Party. Owen, thanks for coming on and welcome to Politicology. Yeah, thank you so much. Looking forward to it. And returning to the roundup is Liz Gilbert. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, an alum of Governor Phil Murphy's campaign, and she's worked on the past three DNC national conventions. Welcome back and great to see you again, Liz. Ron, thanks so much for having me and really excited about this Mountain West crew you have here today. (laughs) (laughs) On this week's roundup, the House committee tasked with investigating the January 6th insurrection and the choice facing Kevin McCarthy. The GOP midterm candidates embracing the big lie about mass voter fraud, the COVID-19 Delta variant and the pandemic's deepening political divide, Finally, in our Politicology Plus segment, we'll look at Texas GOP chair and noted secessionist Alan West's primary challenge against Texas Governor Greg Abbott. You won't want to miss this, so you can subscribe to Politicology Plus right now by going to politicology.com plus, or just click the link in your show notes. Let's get started. Late last week, the House of Representatives voted 222 to 190 to form a committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. And just two Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, voted for the measure. And again, this comes after the Senate blocked a bill that would have created a bipartisan commission similar to the 9-11 commission. Now, Speaker Pelosi has the final say as to who is placed on the committee, and she's already selected Liz Cheney in an effort to give the committee bipartisan credibility. But Kevin McCarthy also gets to select five members of his caucus for Pelosi to consider. McCarthy is at a crossroads in determining to what extent Republicans should participate and who exactly should serve on the committee. And according to Politico, the most eager House Republicans, other than Cheney and her small sect of truth-based allies, are the bomb throwers, the firebrands, the the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Jim Jordans and Matt Gaetzes and Lauren Boeberts. Uh, and the more serious Republicans who would actually serve on the committee in good faith, um, relatively speaking, or, or or even those who might be able to more skillfully obfuscate, right, are, are for the most part uninterested. So, Owen, McCarthy has a number of paths to choose here. Um, does he select members of his caucus who will do the GOP's bidding, but at least try to work towards productive outcomes? Or does he really just want to turn the whole thing into a circus? Well, if he was smart, he would choose five members who would really try to give some legitimacy to the Republicans' talking points and to the goals that they have for this um, committee. Uh, However, we've also seen that he's been pretty feckless uh, when it comes to leading, and he has turned his uh, caucus over to the bomb throwers. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, who's from my state of Colorado, uh, Matt Gaetz, you know, they have a lot of sway in the caucus. Uh, and I don't know why anyone else would want to join 
this committee? Uh, why would a Republican who is more moderate or uh, sensical, uh, what, what would they get from being on this committee if they're going to have to stand up to Trump, if they might have to interview Trump, if they have to interview McCarthy, if, uh, you know, and they're going to be primaried uh, for that. Uh, there, there's not a lot of good that can come from this uh, other than standing up for your country and getting to the uh, bottom of what happened uh, during the insurrection. And increasingly, Republicans are just not interested in doing that. And we'll talk about the GOP candidates um, that in our next segment. But uh, Liz, a thorough investigation will, in all likelihood, help illuminate just how much worse the attack was than we already know, mm-hmm. and perhaps how much more Republicans are implicated in it than we might already think. So, you know, do do Republicans have anything to gain by participating at all in good faith? And and how do you think this affects who McCarthy selects for the committee? Yeah, I think the short answer, Ron, is very simply no. Um, to Owen's point, this is a lose-lose. The fact that the choice is between firebrands and serious investigators, I just want to say it's... Um, it's pretty scary, right, that this is even up for discussion when there's literally a terrorist attack on our nation's capital and we're discussing, do we go with the firebrands or the or the serious ones? Um, I think what would be a, a win for McCarthy, if there even is such a thing, is picking people who are seen as fighters for the party. I think that's the only way that he is seen as doing... Um, you know, I wish there was a different word choice, but doing a good job is picking people who will fight for the party. To Owen's point, it it really is such a tricky and challenging situation, but that said, this is politics. And if things are tricky, it means that we're doing some good. It means that different sides are voicing their opinions and being involved in the process. If it was easy, um, you know, that would be, that would be a different case. So I, I do think it is a lose lose. Um, but, but what McCarthy, I believe could do would be to pick people seen as fighters for the party. So just to follow up on that, if, Nancy Pelosi has to consider the Matt Gates the loan if if that's ultimately who he chooses mm-hmm. and puts in front of her you know to consider is it better for her to 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 appoint them or to just put all democrats on this committee Great question. So I believe that um, Pelosi can can say no um, to anyone that McCarthy mm-hmm. suggests, right? So yeah, it's up to her. Um, yeah. So uh, look, I don't um, totally know the the voting guidelines, so I don't know if it's worth it to have the one uh, firebrand on to say that I was attempting bipartisanship, and if this is what the party has to offer, this is the best we got. I think Pelosi is extremely calculated, and I think giving any more oxygen to those firebrands who I was reading in one of the articles this morning, um, you know, they are so good at the quick clips online to just say one thing that will go viral that will then allow them to fundraise and have these great online social media campaigns um, with, you know, QAnon supporters and the like. Is it worth it for Pelosi to accept the Republicans if that is the possible fallout from that? Yeah. Oh, and it seems to me that the test for whether uh, a member gets to serve on this committee is whether or not that member believes that the that the committee ought to exist in the first place to investigate the insurrection in the first place. What do you think? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, this is this entire situation is just so entirely crazy, and it's one of the reasons that I've left the Republican Party. Right? Is that these are people that 
were in the room. They were, their lives were at stake. The vice president of their own party, uh, these people marched in and said that they should be hanged. And yet at the end of the day, now they're changing their tune. Uh, you know, they're saying this was just like any other uh, tour of the Capitol. I've been on several tours of the Capitol. I have never, <laughs> I have never broken glass. I have never like stormed offices and, or anything like that. And so this is, you know, I, I think one thing that we have to keep coming back to is, especially when we're looking at what Nancy Pelosi's thinking uh, and rationale is when accepting who the Republicans will be, is, um, you know, this is going to be all over the news. This is going to suck out all the oxygen out of the room. I remember during uh, the uh, impeachment hearings, uh, I was flying back from Florida, I think, and I got up and I was uh, walking back to my seat and every single monitor had the impeachment hearings mm. on it. And this is flying from Florida. This wasn't flying from DC. And I think the same thing is going wow. to be happening here. Uh, this was something that really united the country against what we were seeing with Trumpism. This is something that if you just have the firebrands, if you just have, um, you know, the people that, you know, very well, they might, some of them might have to be investigated and reviewed by this committee as well. It really makes the Republican Party not seem serious and it makes them more um, vulnerable, I think, in the upcoming elections because this is not, this is some, an attack that we all saw that really brought our country together, everyone outside of Washington, D.C. And it was, um, and I think they just have to take this more seriously than what they've been doing thus far. So I, I I totally agree, and you know I'm 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 inclined to think that you know not a single Republican should sit on this thing, um, except maybe Liz Cheney, right? Liz Cheney would be great, yeah. but Kinzinger, uh, but and and Adam Kinzinger, but um, so earlier this week at an event where he announced he is filing lawsuits against social media companies. Uh, we don't call him the former guy. We call him disgraced, twice impeached former president Donald Trump, <laughs> again called for the officer who shot insurrectionist Ashley Babbitt as she tried to enter the speaker's lobby. Uh, he called again for her to be identified. Let's take a listen. There were no guns in the Capitol. They burned it except for the gun that shot Ashley Babbitt. And nobody knows who that man were. If that were the opposite way, that man would be all over. He would be the the most well-known, and I believe, I can say man, because I believe I know exactly who it is, but he would be the most well-known person in this country, in the world, but the person that shot Ashley Babbitt, boom, right through the head, just boom. There was no reason for that. And why isn't that person being opened up, and why isn't that being studied? They've already written it off. They said, that case is closed. Never one to worry about the details. Ashley Babbitt was not shot in the head. She was shot in the neck. Um, so how closely will Trump be watching the committee's progress? And how do you think his attempts to turn Babbitt into a martyr, you know, which put him in the same camp as Paul Gosar and Vladimir Putin, um, just for the record, uh, how do you think that will serve uh, Republicans' attempt to rewrite January 6th? Owen, then Liz. To me, this is really troubling. It is him trying to make a one. I think he is going to be watching this very closely. You know, if it's about him, then he's paying attention to what's going on. Um, 
and he'll be commenting too. So I think it's going to be really interesting. You know, he's been, he's been dying to have his rallies. He'll be having his rallies. I'm sure during this, his people will be having their press conferences and whatnot, just to make it, make him feel better about what's happening. I, I do have a real big issue with the Republicans and it's not just Trump. It's not just Gosar and other, there are others who are trying to uh, make Babbitt a, a, a martyr here. Um, for something that has been, um, you know, I guess, I don't even know what to say here. It's just so <laughs> aggravating uh, this, watching this, talking about this stuff, you know, watching that New York Times uh, video. I don't know if you did that. I watched that and I couldn't even sleep after. Oh, the, the 40 minute documentary. The 40 minute documentary yeah, on it. It's in my playlist. It, yeah. Yeah. You have to watch it and, because there's a part where they talk about Ashley Babbitt and, you know, the whole thing's unfortunate. It's terrible what happened. Um, but by making her a martyr, what you're doing is you're going, it's like martyrs anywhere. It's like when you lift up a person, um, and say that this was the face of our resistance. This is the face of, uh, what we are fighting for. And she died for, um, what they believe was right and noble. And she died for, you know, trying to stop the steal. Um, it's a rallying point. It's a yeah. symbol now that they'll be able to use and that they are already starting to use and trying to use. I'm kind of interested if uh, Trump still talks to Putin and if he's, cause this is something that Putin does so well, right? Like oh, he does yeah. create these rallying points and these uh, individuals who, um, you know, represent what he's trying, the propaganda that he's trying to put forward. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, to me, it's just extremely scary and, Sorry for babbling. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I mean, I think what's happening here, Liz, and I I, I want to get your take, but I, I think what's happening here is Ashley Babbitt actually serves as a bypass for scrutiny of January 6th in, in, in a way that sort of allows them to sanctify the cause behind what happened on January 6th without without scrutinizing it at all. I think that's what's happening here. But what do you, how do you think this will play out? Yeah. Oh, and you were far more insightful um, than I, because I was going to say um, uh, Donald Trump in that clip lost me after saying there were no guns except for the gun. Right. And it's Mm -hmm. like it was just a reminder to me that this is how this man speaks and he has no regard for facts, Ron, to your point, he will just say anything and people listen to that. And so if they can get past all the bullshit, then there's the conversation about Ashley Babbitt and martyrdom and was it just a tour of the Capitol and all of these things. But to me, that clip, um, and sorry to harp on this point, but you can't say there was none except for the one. Um, And that just shows that he is going to continue to manipulate the facts and figures around January 6th. He's going to do so from whatever platform he will be given. I'm sure members of Congress back in their districts will welcome him with open arms. He might not have Twitter and he might not have, you know, other forms of social media, though it sounds like others are really coming up fast and furious for him, but he is going to find whatever megaphone he can to say whatever it is that he wants. And I think that's going to be a huge um, part of the oxygen that is getting sucked up during, um, you know, these uh, hearings and this investigation um, is going to be what will Trump be doing on the outside and how will that try and conflate what's going on, um, with the, the quote, serious in, in investigators. On the yeah. Outside. And, and we should be clear about the fact here. There were several 
insurrectionists armed with various weapons, Absolutely. according mm-hmm. to prosecutors' filings. And we're talking with um, uh, journalist Scott McFarland soon. Uh, he's an investigative journalist about these prosecutions, yeah. and uh, and so we'll have we'll we'll have more on that. But yeah. um, well, it's certainly not true that that was the only gun. Right. <laughs> you know, right. I, I think one of the things that's concerning about this too is it, it kind of reminds me of are we still in this pro- post truth um era right oh, is yes. it yeah. is it still going yeah, to be donald trump out there i always think of when uh putin went into ukraine and they're like hey here's a general that's you know we a known russian general and he's like that's not a russian general and they're like oh here are your tanks these are russian tanks those aren't russian tanks they literally have <laughs> russian insignia on there he's like that's not russian insignia yeah. and it's like the same thing with donald trump and he's going as soon as he says it as soon as he talks yeah. about Ashley Babbitt, and then it's going to be in Gosar, and then Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Lauren Boebert, and then yeah. all you know, all the networks are going to be talking about it, and then the reporters, for some reason, at, uh, at other journals, places they they're going to quote what he's saying as well, and people yeah. are just going to take it at face value. Yeah, it's um, it's concerning, and that's why this uh, committee is so important. That's why uh, it's so important to get to the bottom of what actually happened here. And I hope that the Republicans, um, I, I think that if, if I were uh, talking to Kevin McCarthy, I would say, you know, put in a couple bomb throwers, fine, whatever. Uh, but then also you need to have some what? people there to help. I, if, I were, if I were advising him as a Republican, I would yeah. say you need to have a couple bomb throwers on there, right? Like you need someone, a couple people to have Donald Trump's back so that those will be, you'll have those quotes. But then you'll also, like, I'm trying to spread spread everything out and have a couple people have the rest be those really good people, the people that really want to get uh, to the bottom of what's happening. And, you know, when you have, here's how, why this is important. They, they have to be serious. When you have Adam Schiff and Jamie Raskin and Zoe Lofgren and uh, Bernie Thompson, these are all serious lawmakers. These are all serious policymakers. These are all people who have experience trying to get to the bottom of uh, challenges and they're respected. And when they're talking, they bring up great points. They bring, they'll be asking uh, thoughtful questions. They're not going to be just yelling at uh, whoever's at the table. And uh, that's, that's why he needs to have that sort of uh, balance there. I think he's just trying to hedge Do you think that contrast helps him in some way? I think the contrast, I, I think he has to show, there are still a lot of Republicans out there who are tired of what's gone on with the Trump during the Trump years. And um, they're tired of what happened even during the Obama years. I'm still hearing from Republicans that I've talked to who are upset that the Republicans just tried to block everything that was going on uh, under Obama. And, uh, and you know, the other day we saw um, Chip Roy say the same thing. You know, we're just trying to, we're just trying to sow chaos for the next 17 months. And people are over that. You know, we have, you know, our roads are falling apart. We still are in the middle of a pandemic. We have all these, uh, you know, we have issues with China. We have issues with Russia. We have our economy that we're still worried about. Uh, still, you know, we have a lot of people unemployed. We have a lot of jobs that just aren't being able to be filled. These are all things that require serious, um, thoughtful people. And if they're just, if the Republican Party Party just wants to be the circus from now on. Um, you know they could do that, but I think you need to show at the same time you have some ser- you have some people in the party who are serious and want to uh, work things out. So I think if I were advising uh, if I were advising uh, uh, McCarthy, I'd be like, let's hedge the, hedge your bets here mm-hmm. and try to get as show as much of the party as you can. Give give Trump what he's going to need, but give the donors and the people the voters. Uh, what they're going to want to see as well. 
that's a tough pill to swallow for yeah, me. Yeah, give Trump Sorry. what he needs is what I just yeah. heard. Well, no, but it's, <laughs> if I were advising him as a politician, if of I'm looking course. at it from a political yeah, yeah, position, yeah, yeah. then yeah, that's what you definitely have to do. Yes. If I'm looking at it from an American, I'd be like, no, you need to put only serious people in there. But right. I mean, how many serious people are in that caucus? I yeah, Right. Yes. Right. Uh, okay. I think it's important to make that distinction. That is what an advisor to McCarthy, who's on his side and right. wants the yeah. best for the Republican Party to do. Um, I'm not in that chair. No, neither am I. <laughs> and, and neither, yeah. And, and so I take your point about that being the way Kevin McCarthy's advisors are probably guiding him. But what does it mean for American democracy that that's actually the best path for, for McCarthy? I mean, it means we're fucked, right? This is <laughs> this is a tough, tough thing that he has to do. He, has, you want to be a leader, you have to lead, and we all know, you know, if you look how scattered he's been about the entire insurrection, um, from immediately right before he was saying this, you know, he was voting with uh, the far right in his party. Well, not the far right, the majority of his party. The majority of the party. They're not the far right anymore. The majority of the party is the far right. Right. They're just, they've just completely lost it. It's bonkers. And we need to have, we are a two party system. And so you have to have two parties that are dedicated to uh, fighting for democracy. They have to be dedicated to doing what's right. And right now we have a party that is only that their only concern is holding power. What does the Republican party stand for anymore? Since I worked there, I could pull out press releases, op-eds and stuff that I've written, interviews I've done for years and years as a Republican uh, consultant and working for the Colorado GOP and working for all these candidates. And we were for, you know, having strong uh, national security. We were for having a uh, uh, balanced budget. We were for uh, lower taxes. What does the Republican Party stand for? They don't stand for any of those things anymore. They are just entirely consumed with power. And power for what? For power's sake? Uh, you know, it makes no sense to me, but it's detrimental to our, uh, it's detrimental, uh, not only for our democracy, but if we are supposed to be the leaders of the free world, what is that telling everyone else? That we have a party that is only concerned about winning and they're, and they're even okay with uh, people trying to take down our process by going into what is the most important symbol of our democracy, which is the capital. I mean, I'm not convinced that we are the leaders of the free world anymore. Oh, no, I'm not either. Mm. Unfortunately. <sighs> Ron, always saying it like it is. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, and you see that. It, we just we just had this discussion relatively recently. Um, you know, we, we, we've talked about how, uh, you know, President Biden in his, in his first inaugural address, in his, in his first uh, address to a joint session of Congress, noted that... Um, uh, the, that our foreign adversaries are asking, he says America is back and they say, mm, yeah, but mm-hmm. for how long? Right. Right. So let's talk about these Republican candidates and, uh, and the big lie. Um, the notion that Republicans might step back from the ledge uh, in the immediate aftermath of January 6th was short lived. And now it's becoming clear that propping up the big lie the false claim that there was mass voter fraud that stole the election from Donald Trump is going to be a central issue for the 2022 midterms. So according to Axios and the Washington Post, at least one third of the nearly 700 Republican candidates for next year's House and Senate races have embraced the big lie, including 136 sitting members of Congress, 16 of whom attended the Stop the Steal rally. In addition, across the country, there are dozens of big lie adherents running for powerful statewide offices, including governor, attorney general, and the extremely important secretary of state positions, 
with authority over election administration. And to top it all off, the latest PBS NewsHour NPR Marist poll says that a full two-thirds of Americans believe U.S. democracy is under threat. So, Liz, how exactly is elections are rigged going to be an election-winning strategy for Republicans if you tell— I'm actually interested to hear what both of you think about this, because if you tell your voters over and over that elections are rigged, elections are stolen, elections are fraudulent, what would motivate them to show up to vote in an election for you? How can you possibly motivate someone to go vote when you spend all this time telling them that their vote doesn't matter? Yeah. So, Ron, what you're saying is extremely rational. And intelligent, <laughs> and I am not here. Someone to was speak. someone was told me don't attempt to inject logic into the political it, process. Go, go, so go ahead. That's pretty much exactly what I was going to say because I think you and I have shared that before, and it's like, well, well, duh, you know. Um, I think what's going on right now is that the individuals who believe that the election was stolen will believe someone when they say to go make sure that doesn't happen again, you have to go vote. If you are already believing that this was a big steal, if you are already believing that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president, you are then also a person most likely who is going to listen to someone that is telling you the only way to fix this is to go vote. So to your point, you brought up a very rational and intelligent comment, and I don't want to just typecast an entire constituency of the country. However, I think there is a very significant constituency that believes that the only way to make sure elections are not stolen in the future, you know, big air quotes on stolen, is to elect people who will fight uh, to defend them. And, and those people, in my opinion, are extremely scary. And they are, to your point, when you were just reading those numbers and percentages and statistics, they are everywhere in all levels of government. And this should yeah. be the focus of moderate Republicans in particular, making sure these primaries are handled in a very, very focused manner. And Democrats, of course, but I really do feel that the Republican primaries are where the focus should be, honestly, for mm -hmm. both Democrats and moderate Republicans at this time. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and also... This reminds me of, you know, the Republicans' assault on on uh, mail-in voting, which, right. you know, as you and I both know very well, that has been a staple of Republican campaigns for the last 20 years. Right. You know, I here in Colorado, we have mail-in voting. We've had it for a while. It's worked great. You know, we had Republican Secretary of States implement it, and it has been wonderful. I think if I – so this is going to be me talking as – if I were a Republican consultant again, if I <laughs> okay, were, just just to inoculate just, yourself against yes. the hate mail that, that, that might come, I don't want to be attacked. No one at me. If I were, <laughs> if I were, I would say, you know, I, I would go around saying, you know, this is why we pass these laws. We pass these laws in these states, including Georgia and Texas and Arizona and elsewhere, to inoculate us to make sure that we that your voting is safe now. And so that's why you need to come out and vote. I would, you know, raise up those terrible laws mm. that they've been running mm. uh, throughout the country. Um, you know, is it going to work? I mean, I don't know. I probably, I mean, as Liz said, these, we're, we're trying to be talk rationally to people that are running on um, on emotion, right? That's pretty much yeah. what I, my, my yeah, whole a, thing about yeah. Donald Trump and why he won is it's grievance. You no, know, yeah, it's grievance. There are these people yeah. that he came from the Tea Party, and the Tea Party was always. I've been to so many meetings where they're yelling at us for not being 
pure about whatever uh, you know military thing we're talking about, not adhering to the Constitution. They had very strict rules on what they supported in terms of policies. And now, yet Donald Trump comes and he's totally against trade. He's totally against everything that they've stood for, and yet they uh, they've uh, latched onto him because it was all about that feeling. It was all about that anger and that grievance, as you said. And I think the same thing is happening here. This is the new grievance that this election was stolen. And so you have all these Republican candidates who are saying, well, I'm actually going to stand up against that from ever happening again and vote for me. Um, and it's scary. You know, again, we're fucked. This isn't we're, we're in trouble. So we actually just had uh, David Becker on the show to talk about the Supreme Court's recent ruling that upheld uh, the two laws in Arizona uh, and more importantly, essentially defanged what was left of the Voting Rights Act. And scary as it is, the democracy under threat train has long since left the station. Um, As David put it, democracy is in triage. If we have one of two major political parties embracing election lies and insisting that their candidates only lose because of fraud— you know, where what what recourse is there then, Liz? What can Democrats or concerned citizens, for that matter, do to stop this other than beat them in elections? Yeah. So to put my um, elementary educator hat uh, back on, um, always, <laughs> mm-hmm. Ron. It's you know, it's civics education at all levels, right? It's teaching younger kids who can't even vote yet, sure, but also in our high schools and in in college, quite frankly. I mean, these are young voters who can be inspired to be involved in the process should they understand the importance. So yes, voting is number one, number one. If you are not registered to vote, get your butt registered to vote for these upcoming midterms, of course. But it is really teaching about the foundations of our country, of democracy, of civics, Um, and instilling this via education um, to young people at all levels, because I think there is an older generation that has certainly bought into um, a lot of the Trump mantras and and what he stands for and represents and what he says, and they listen to it. And so not to be total Debbie Downer, but there might be an entire generation or faction of a generation that we might not be able to quote fix um, or talk to them in a way that will make them change their beliefs. But I really think instilling in our younger voters um, the importance of what is going on right now is and always will be so key. Okay. I don't disagree, but here's where I tend to uh, not be quite as optimistic, yeah. right? Because I I, I, I totally, I, I just as much as all of you lament the decline of civic education, yeah. but here's the trouble. When you look at, I don't think it's just civic education. And I also, um, uh, I, I also look at, you know, Pew does this study every year. They've been doing it for a long time where they measure, um, they, they ask us, it's a longitudinal study. So they ask the same question set over and over again, and they measure the difference among the, the same, the same population to see how attitudes are changing. And one of those questions is, do you believe it is essential to live in a democracy or something along those lines? And the, the, the older, at the older end of the spectrum, those numbers are very high, 70% or so. The, the younger you get down the demographics uh, and and into the millennial range and now the Zoomer range, that number dips below 
And increasingly, younger people are not answering that question. Yes, right. So democracy as a concept, the it, it, is it, is not even um, uh, is not even uh, essential to so many young people now. So I don't I don't know that. I don't know that education alone does it because, you know, one of the things um, that has been said about that study is that, well, what that question is actually asking, what what people are actually hearing, especially the younger you get, those respondents hear that question and say, do you think the system that you're living in is working? Is it working well for you? And they're answering that question, no, it isn't. And if you look around, they're right. Ron, I think what is happening now is that the that this younger generation in particular is looking around um, and understanding in the outskirts of the classrooms and in educational settings, they are feeling their civics. They can touch it. They can be part of it in their communities. I think if we do a better job of teaching about um, the the history and the mechanics and the implications, I know that's I know that's a hard feat. I know it is not easy to say we want to teach kids, you know, more about history and the Constitution and the foundations of this country because so many in the younger generations totally reject that now as a premise. But I think when you um, review the concepts of what democracy is, why it's important, why it does and doesn't work, um, even creating more like mock debate settings, allowing for younger people to have a dialogue in a structured way where it's not just talking about what doesn't work, but going further to discuss what we can do to make it work. It's that second part that I think we're missing that I think is is really very important, mm-hmm. quite honestly. And also, need Democrats need to show up and beat Republicans in elections. Right. But anyway, yeah, no doubt. Like I said, <laughs> one, I mean, beyond register your yeah. butt to vote and get out there. There is nothing more important. But then we need to think when it is not election day or early voting, and when you can't vote by mail and all of those other days. What are we doing day to day for the younger generation to explain to them what's going on, right. why it's happening, and asking them what do you think we should do about it? Engaging them in that dialogue. Can I just say why I'm a little bit hopeful here is Joe Biden, one of the reasons he was dragged across the finish line was because of young people. We had last year, we saw young people stand up in ways totally taking advantage of their uh, democratic rights, right? The First Amendment rights by protesting and, you know, uh, the blogs and everything going on on social media, like, uh, and then coming out and voting. I'm optimistic that they were the ones that actually defended our democracy in this last election. And the older people who say democracy is important, they were voting for an authoritarian, right? Like they were pushing for a person that uh, was trying to take apart our government and take away, take apart our uh, constitutional uh, rights. And so I guess I'm just trying to say, I'm a little optimistic here. I think the younger people, they'll get it. They'll catch on here. And right now I think it's maybe a little bit of semantics. And, um, but at the end of the day, they ended up putting forward people that were, loved their country, loved democracy, loved the constitution. And, um, you know, but we still need to move forward and we need to educate people and uh, continue fighting for that. It has thankfully been some time since COVID headlines made their way into the roundup. But with the CDC announcing that the highly transmissible Delta variant now accounts for over half of new COVID-19 cases and with a deepening divide between how Americans are responding to information about the pandemic, it's important to look at how political differences are driving wildly different public health outcomes in different parts of the country. The Delta variant 
is described by experts as more infectious and possibly carrying a higher risk of hospitalization. And it is particularly dangerous to those who are unvaccinated and uh, full dosage of a COVID-19 vaccine is highly effective in preventing hospitalization and serious illness uh, with, with Delta. And just 20 states reached President Biden's goal of partially vaccinating 70% of adults by July 4th. And all 20 of them voted for Biden last November, illuminating the political divide that is now a pandemic divide. So according to the Washington Post, eight of the 10 states that are seeing the most rapid case increase voted for Trump. And the five states where the COVID-19 related death rate is increasing are Oklahoma, Alabama, South Carolina, Kentucky, and Indiana, which are 42nd. 56th, 45th, 33rd, and 36th, respectively, on the list of the 50 states. D.C. and five territories by percent population fully vaccinated. Kentucky, the best of that group, has vaccinated only 44% of their eligible population, and it just gets worse from there as you go down this list. So, Liz, uh, how is the Biden administration working to convince skeptical Americans that they should take the vaccine? And how important are their contacts and engagement at the local level? Yeah, absolutely. So I think what's most um, impressive for me, even though they did fall short of the goal, I think what's most impressive is how quickly those who wanted to be vaccinated were able to be vaccinated. So while it might not be the sheer number and population of folks that we would have hoped would have taken the vaccine um, by now, I think the rollout for the most part was fairly seamless that those who were willing and able um, were in fact able. I think what the Biden administration is trying to do now, I think is... um, not to be a a total cynic here, but I think it will be um, an effort that probably will not work out in in the way that they hope. And so what I have been reading and what they are looking to do is really engage in a grassroots campaign very much at the local levels with whatever tools they have at their disposal to really go community by community um, to, to get this done. I believe that if there were willing and able uh, partners in that effort, that those efforts would have already been underway. You know, we see the the DNC, and and I know I'm you know on the record sometimes being a DNC skeptic, of course, but we have seen them now with an ice cream truck going around DC. You know, free ice cream cones and shots in arms and all of this, and it's like the people who would go to the DNC truck for the free ice cream cone, if they are not already vaccinated, then we have a problem there. I mean, these should be people who have um, already gotten shots in arms. And so I think trying to figure out community by community, what will move people, um, I think that's really important. I saw yesterday, and I can't even believe I'm bringing this up, but um, the rapper Juvenile, changing his back that thing up anthem to vax that thing up. Um, He wants to do something good for his community. Um, I think it's hilarious. I had a very similar reaction, Ron, with the laughing. And then I obviously played the anthem as a child of the 90s, um, you know, and, and have been kind of blasting that on repeat for the last 24 hours. But I think it is going to take a lot of creative um, maneuvering to get communities who have just been so resistant um, to to sign up and, and put their arms out there. I think it's going to take a lot of work. And I am grateful that the administration wants to work with partners at the local level. But I think it's going to take the will and wherewithal from community leaders themselves to say, okay, how are we going to make this happen? 
Yeah. Owen, how have we seen awareness and skepticism change at the local level after outbreaks have occurred? You know, I think awareness, I, I watch a lot of local television that's not in Denver for some reason. I'm ah, one of those nerds. Interesting. And so mm-hmm. I was watching Missouri local television the other day on, uh, in Springfield in particular, they're having a huge increase. Um, they're actually out of ventilators. They're out of their beds are full in the hospital. They're actually at a point um, where they are in a worse place now than they were during the worst part of the pandemic for the rest of the country. And, you know, to me, it's just kind of, this is more sad than anything else that we have. We're at a point where people have just attached whether you're going to get a vaccine to your politics. It makes absolutely no sense. And so I think, uh, you know, communities have been, states and communities have been trying to do lotteries. They've been trying to do, um, you know, fun things like uh, go to a baseball game and you can get your vaccine there and you'll get in for free, like trying to do things like that, which are great, but it's still not it's still not uh, progressing where it needs to be. And I think, you know, I, I, I believe if we have more doc, like if doctors, that's who should be front and center on these conversations, like just have every doctor in a town go and do a commercial and, you know, and just explain why this is so important. Um, uh, it's, It's just so challenging though. I just don't know, like we've been working on this for a year and we don't, we still don't have the answer. Yeah. But, but, but we do have doctors like Fauci front and center taking right. leadership roles, but we also have Republican politicians seizing the right. reins and making this yeah. a political lightning rod. What is the lasting damage of having voices from the highest levels of of government and 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 you know leadership figures in the Republican Party? And I hate to use that word leader, um, reinforcing these dangerous, deadly viewpoints. And do you think there are going to be any political consequences for them when these outbreaks do occur, the death rate spike, hospitalization rate spike, and 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 family members are forced to reckon with the fact that this is real? Or, or are they, you know, will there not be any consequences? Yeah, I think, um, Owen, to your point about doctors front and center and Ron with your, you know, Fauci is there and he's the doctor of all doctors, right? Um, I think, honestly... Some political ads, if we're going back to the politics of coronavirus, which again, I can't believe is a thing, but this is where we are. The political ads that are so successful are the ones that really tug, excuse me, at the heartstrings. And so I almost wonder if someone needs to run a campaign with um, Mm. COVID survivors or family members um, that lost uh, family due to the pandemic and just say, this is real. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeting, people don't care about the Delta variant. People right. don't care about coronavirus. I, I regret to say she's not totally wrong. She's not totally wrong. She's, and and you're looking at pictures of people going back to, you know, life, you know, as quote normal. And I just wonder if there is any way to engage in that emotional campaign mm-hmm. of if you are not careful. The consequences are real. I think people are, maybe they are tired of listening to Dr. Fauci at this point, which is again, scary and sad, but I think the tactics that we've, um, you know, used thus far have not totally worked. And if they had more people, um, would be vaccinated at this time, Ron, to your point about candidates and consequences and voting and, and all of that. I, I think that, um, I think that there is a subset of the population 
that is just not going to get vaccinated specifically yeah. for their political reasons. Mm. And I will leave this completely at the hands of our former disgraced, twice impeached uh, <laughs> president. Thank you. Donald yes. Trump, you're welcome. Um, and I hope I didn't leave out any other qualifiers. I'm sure there are many, but um, <laughs> he could have at the very beginning said, this is serious to the population and not just Bob Woodward privately and quietly. He could have... Um, not politicize this from the beginning. And I think we will face the repercussions of that for a very, very long time. Yeah. This falls at his yeah. feet. And I think we will continue to see that aftermath for a really, really long time, unfortunately. And by the way, you know, there is a conundrum in, in that uh, statement, Liz, which is that if he had not politicized it, if he had, if he had simply just said, wear a mask, he probably would have won. Yeah. I, I and completely th- agree and, with and that. And then where would we be? Mm-hmm. So, Yep. And by the way, just for our listeners, uh, j- just to underscore the political divide here on vaccinations, there's a new Washington Post ABC News poll out just this past weekend that said 93% of Democrats say they've either received a vaccine or plan to. And that number among Republicans, take a guess, 49%. Wow. So, yeah. Whew. Go ahead, Owen. No, I think what concerns me to your question about how this will impact people politically is I think they're going to be fine. Like these, most of these Republicans are going to be reelected and it's unfortunate. And if, you know, 600,000 people dying, isn't going to be something that makes it so that that person should lose their office. I don't know what will. Now that we're up to speed on three of the biggest stories this week, uh, what are you both watching, uh, Liz? Yeah, so I think folks have probably seen that Donald Trump is going forward with a lawsuit against Mm -hmm. Facebook, Twitter, Google, and the like. And so to me, that's not a story that's undercover. Um, But what was most interesting in following that story is that after filing the lawsuit, he immediately sent out a fundraising email from his political (laughs) apparatus. So I think what we all need to be watching is how Donald Trump is going to continue to fundraise, A, for what, B, you know, what is this organization doing? What are they preparing (laughs) for? What are their intentions? Who's getting paid? You know, so many questions. Mm -hmm. I put back my political fundraising hat back on very squarely for this one. What is he going to do around fundraising with the one six? commission. I mean, what, Mm. what will that fundraising push look like? And so watching him use the terrorist attack on our capital as a fundraising tool for his political apparatus is alarming and something that I think we should all be paying very close attention to. And we should also remember that he has uh, disallowed the Republican National Committee and all of the Republican organizing groups uh, from using the Trump name in their own fundraising efforts, which means that all the money that is being raised by him is going directly into Trump-operated entities. And we, we we know what that means. He's not yep. actually raising money for the Republican Party or for campaigns. Uh, and, and that would be terrible in and of itself. He's yep. actually raising money for himself. and Himself, and, and, and it's or- going to be off of the back of this 1-6 commission. That's right. And, and this terrorist attack that he incited, um, he'll be making money off of it. And that's something that I hope the Democrats and others will be messaging extremely clearly. Mm-hmm. Which is obviously extremely repulsive, but it also betrays just how much contempt he has for his own donors. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more on <laughs> 
Owen, what are you watching? So I'm watching something that's given me a little bit of hope as a lifelong Westerner and whose family has been here for hundreds in this part of the country for hundreds of years. Um, we finally have some Republicans who are addressing climate change. And so, what? yes. So Representative John Curtis started the Conservative Climate Change Caucus. And there are some pretty surprising people on there, but most of these are from Western states where we are experiencing <laughs> that are on fire yeah, that we and are have no water. Burning. You know, last year, uh, it was terrible. Walking, I think you were actually at my house last year when I was having to wipe ashes off the furniture. And, right. you know, seeing the moon blood red day after day is... It's scary. And so uh, these uh, representative John Curtis, he has uh, he, he started this uh, conservative climate change caucus that is going to, you know, they're not going to be where uh, AOC is on climate change, uh, but they're going to be they're addressing it and they're recognizing that climate change is uh, impacted by man which is important. Mm. A lot of Republicans won't mm. do that. Ron Johnson the other day said, yeah. uh, from Wisconsin, said that it was BS. Uh, but we do, finally, now we have Republicans who are addressing this. And I hope it's a good starting point uh, to help write the show. How many are there? Uh, I think How there many? are like 50 or something like that. <laughs> sorry. No, sorry, there were a lot. There were like 50 or something like that. So, Whoa. Yeah. I, I, that actually is impressive. Yeah. Um, that's a good chatter. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, I just want to briefly mention um, Shikari Richardson, who will not run at the Tokyo Olympics after testing positive for THC. Um, I, I think it's insane that THC is a banned substance to begin with. Uh, as I can assure you, it is not performance enhancing uh, for anything but but you know ordering Shake Shack on on DoorDash. But uh, uh, um, Richardson, oh, here's enough. the here, here's 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 my take. I think, you know, as terrible as this is, she should have known better, uh, should have followed the rules, but really like the IOC really needs to change these rules going forward. Um, but I'm, I would love to know what you guys think. Yeah. Well, being from Colorado, uh, we are, <laughs> we strongly disagree. I think I speak for the state. We strongly disagree with this decision and, <laughs> <for> the state. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we should let her run. It's fine. It's like, in, it's fine. Just let her run. Liz, have you watched this? Yeah, I, I have. And it's, um, I, I have really enjoyed watching so many people speak up um, against this decision. I have really um, enjoyed watching the social media chatter that has been, I think, fairly unanimous against yeah. it. And yeah. I I am devastated for her, of course, and and for our country. I mean, what an incredible athlete. To, She's the fastest woman um, alive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what an incredible athlete to um, penalize for, you know, if she was living in certain states at certain times, it wouldn't be an issue. I mean, it's, yeah. it is so ridiculous, Ron, to the point that you brought up at the start of, of this discussion is that this is a much larger issue that I am only hopeful that this horrible thing that has happened to her her will bring it to the forefront and mm -hmm. and create very yeah. swift that is so unbelievably overdue um i'm devastated for her she's remarkable and uh i'm i'm only hopeful because i know we have not seen the last of her yet before i let you go where can our listeners find you on the internet liz i'm on twitter at underscore liz gilbert owen at owen keith 
Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you're not already in our Politicology Plus community, you can check that out and unlock today's bonus segment and much more at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. You can also help us by sharing this episode and by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.